All right. Welcome to episode three of the PR and Law podcast. I am your host, Cam McMurchie, with employment lawyer Ewan Christie. Hello, Cam. How you doing? All right. Not bad, Ewan. Good to have you back on. Uh, I am a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. And Ewan practices law at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada at DuntroonLLP.law. Okay, just a couple of things to, uh, to deal with before we get into the show this week. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. It's literally kind of the, the only way we have to get word out that we're, that we're doing this show and that we're providing information for PR and, and legal people and just other professionals, uh, you know, some of the issues that we're talking about. Um, and we're also on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, across all of those accounts, we are at PR Law Podcast, PR Law Podcast podcast. Um, so you can find us on any of those four, four channels. And if you'd like to support us, we would really appreciate that as well. You can find us on Patreon. Uh, you can go to our show website at prlawpodcast.com and click support show. All right, Doc, what's going on? Well, if weather's finally starting to get warmer here in the great white North Cameron, that's always, uh, always exciting. Um, of course, the springtime is a little bit different here than normal, given all of our, uh, social social distancing rules um but you know i, I gotta say um i was a little frustrated this week in that uh, there are a lot of people out there who do not seem to be particularly conscious of what's going on and ensuring that they are practicing social distancing or wearing masks um you know i was at my i was at the saint lawrence market yesterday saint lawrence market is a huge, huge market. And I think National Geographic voted it the best market in all of North America. It's one of the best in the world. And I was shocked when I went in, you know, I was going to visit my butcher and what have you. Nobody was wearing masks, or at least very few people were. Um, and few people were practicing the social distancing rules that have been, you know, imposed by by the province. And I, I then came home to find out that there was uh, a, a rally down at, at Queens Park where the, the pr provincial government sits. And, you know, a lot of these these individuals talking about, you know, we need to be free and I need to get my hair cut. Um, our, our premier came on television and um, called them a bunch of yahoos. And frankly, Is that the term I, that he I, used? I have to agree with them. Yahoos? Yahoo's. <laughs> oh, Yahoo's. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, 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 I got to agree. This stuff is really, really frustrating to see. It's like, it only works when everybody gets involved, you know, and Toronto is a huge city We're you know, the fourth largest city in North America. Um, we need everybody to be on board here because okay. if we only have a, you know, a certain segment of the population that are listening and observing these rules, um, the whole, the whole thing collapses. I agree. Uh, let me dive in. Uh, I want to get back to that, Ewan, cause that drives me insane. Uh, but let's do a quick update. All right. I like our little hip hop COVID music here. All right. So, uh, just a couple of things. I'm going to pass it over to you in a second, Ewan, to cover up North America, but obviously COVID-19 is still a huge issue. Uh, the death troll grew three to 4% per day globally over the last 10 days. So there are a lot of people dying from this. Uh, there's now 2.9 million cases uh, of COVID-19 uh, with 200,000 deaths, just over 200,000 deaths. Um, and, you know, taking a look at Asia, in Hong Kong, we've been doing well. Today, we had zero new cases. And several of the last seven days, we've had zero new cases. Uh, so obviously, people are feeling quite good here. 
Uh, but one city that is having a horrible time with it is Singapore. And, you know, when the first wave came around in January, February, uh, Singapore was held up as a model, along with Taiwan and uh, a few other places, uh, for doing such a good job. But in the last uh, seven days, Singapore had 931 new cases, and they're up to 13,000, which is really remarkable because uh, there's about 6 million people, I think, living in Singapore. Um, but it's, uh, it, you know, it's similar to Hong Kong. Uh, but w- these two cities have gone in completely different directions, uh, you know, in this in the last month or so. Uh, so what's happening there, you and I mean, you mentioned Toronto, and you're right, that drives me crazy. Um, because, I, I, you know, I've said this before, if people don't want to wear masks, then fine, don't go out. But you if you do go out, you have to do this for other people. It's not you. I, I don't care if people think that it's fine, that COVID-19 is just the flu, whatever. I think they're wrong, but they're entitled to think that. But don't put other people in harm's way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what, you know, another thing that's sort of interesting, where where I live, I live in, in what would be um, better known as Little Bangladesh. It's a very, very multicultural neighborhood um, kind of a, a quickly gentrifying neighborhood, but very, very multicultural and diverse. And I went to my local grocery store a couple days ago. And what was interesting was that most people were very, very respectful of the rules. Most people were wearing masks. They were practicing social distancing. And yet, you know, yesterday, as I was telling you, when I went down to the St. Lawrence market, which, you know, the, the price point is certainly much higher. Um, it, it is generally speaking a more kind of upper middle class clientele that that shop there. Um, and yet you don't see the majority of people wearing wearing masks. And that's also frustrating, too, because it sort of sort of implies, at least anecdotally, that you know, there's still this segment of the population that feels some sense of entitlement. And I think it's that that sense of entitlement that is what really, really frustrates me somehow that they don't think that they're part of the problem and therefore they don't need to be part of the solution. Well, I mean, that's just ludicrous as we've seen, you know, uh, COVID doesn't discriminate. Um, it will, it can harm anybody. Um, and we've got to be, we all have to be collectively conscious of that and get involved practice social distancing and wear your masks, please (laughs) wear your masks. You know, um, and we talked about this a little bit before, but, uh, and I know my dad listens to this podcast, so sorry, dad, before I even go into this, but, um, you know, I, I, there, there's a lot of people that I come across in North America, not here, who just think that this is somehow a surreptitious, um, you know, power grab by governments who want to control people and begin, you know, controlling social life and the way people interact and that this is all sort of some big scam. And, you know, how, how could people be so foolish to give up their, their liberties and their freedoms so easily? And I, I don't understand this line of thought at all. And I don't know, I mean, this is what's going on in the U.S. too. I mean, there, there were a lot of protests, you know, last weekend about, um, you know, wanting to be let out. Some great signs and stuff, by the way, uh, from some of those rallies. But, um, I mean, governments don't want this at all. They would love to have people out at businesses. I mean, we know that, um, you know, whether it's state governors or provincial premiers or, or, or higher levels of government, it's mostly, their election is mostly dependent on economic performance. And this virus has you know, been a disaster for economies all over the world. That's not good for governments. It's not good for elected officials. Um, So this is not something they're enjoying. This is not something they want. 
Uh, it's something they want to get rid of as quickly as possible so we can all go back to work. So I don't quite, um, I think this conspiracy theory stuff, which I mean has always sort of been on the fringes, especially in the U.S., it's just become so mainstream and it's just, I, it's, I get so tired of it now. Just the incentives don't even align in this case. I mean, there's no point. I don't understand. I don't see what the government would be benefiting from, you know, in this sort of situation. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, Ontario has a conservative premier who ran on a very populist platform. Um, and I thought it was interesting when you have, when you have our premier standing up, referring to these individuals who are out there protesting, um, you know, a bunch, a bunch of yahoos, um, then I think that's really indicative of what's going on. And his argument is exactly the argument that you just summed up. Nobody wants this. This isn't good for anyone. And it certainly isn't good for the economy, but that the only way we can ensure that we're, we're back to some semblance of normal is when everybody observes the rules and and practices social distancing it's not going to work if only a segment of the population does and that's just going to you know stretch out the period of time that we're all staying home and that the the overall economy is is compromised um and and to that point i you know i wanted to just briefly anyway run over some of the numbers um because again you know as we we sort of talked about last week they they continue to be just staggering statistics around this stuff. So we, we've we had so far 7.1 million Canadians that have applied for some form of, of, of financial aid, which puts our unemployment rate at 7.8%. Um, and that number is somewhat misleading because that was the number that was sort of put forth before the Canadian emergency response benefit was made available. So I suspect that number is going to jump. Uh, in the U.S., we saw another 4.4 million Americans file for unemployment benefits last week. So that that brings the total in the U.S. to 26.5 million claims in five weeks. And that translates to an unemployment rate of almost 21 percent or the, you know, the highest level since 1934. Um, interestingly, from a more global perspective, the the IMF. I mean, it, it's now forecasting that the pandemic will shrink global GDP by 3%, also the largest annual drop we've seen since the Great Depression. But, you know, Cam, where this gets really interesting is when you sort of, you start to break down the numbers. You know, there's been a lot of sort of really incredible and astounding statistics that people have been been quoting through this whole thing. But I think one of one of the craziest ones that I've seen is that in the first quarter uh, of, of, you know, the covid the covid outbreak, China's GDP dropped almost seven percent in the first quarter. That's the first quarterly contraction on record for the modern Chinese well, economy. I know that that's a staggering number, but it's also, I, like, I feel like it's also obvious. I mean, um, if this was a, this is not a normal contraction. I think, you know, if there was a, a big contraction over the course of normal, you know, economic operations, it would be a little more notable. But I think, you know, when you look at China in January, especially in February and into March, like the entire country was shut down. And when you consider the size of the economy there, uh, you know, in some measurements, it's already larger than the United States and the amount of manufacturing done there. I mean, I, 7% doesn't really surprise me when, when you look at it that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. Um, you know, I, I think it's to be expected, but I, I, I think still as a historical 
marking point, it, it's still a pretty, a pretty incredible statistic. But, you know, I think what's arguably more, more significant, um, you know, and look, I mean, the, the comparable number in the United States is, is insane as well. I think, you know, Goldman Sachs projected that the U.S. GDP will shrink by 34% in the second quarter. But, you know, what, what's really, really interesting about these numbers is where where this goes over the long term what are the you know what are what are going to be the the implications in terms of the broader globalized market and international trade trade agreements you know one of the, one of the things i thought was was um kind of crazy and i i wasn't aware of this but you know prior to the covid outbreak china apparently accounted for for 50 percent of the world's mask supply um, and since the outbreak, that production has increased 12-fold. They're, they're producing approximately 115 million masks a day. Um, but, of course, they're keeping most of them. You know, and we, we saw in, in, in the news a, a little while back, the U.S. issued sort of a similar edict with regard to um, 3M and its production of the, the N95 masks, effectively stating that they had to stay domestic. And, you know... A lot of countries, particularly Western Western nations, have relied on cheap goods coming in from markets like China, um, particularly medical supplies. And you know, I think there's going to be a, a shift in in the way that we think and we approach the production of goods. And I think we're going to continue to see um, an increase of domestic goods that we would typically rely on to import from from other countries i think we're going to see that shift and that could have really really interesting implications and consequences in terms of labor markets globally labor markets domestically um and i'm I'm very curious to see where this all goes all right really quickly uh off the top i had mentioned singapore had 931 new cases over the last seven days uh a correction that is 931 new cases today, which is Sunday uh, in Asia. Um, so that, that's, a, I mean, almost 1,000 new cases. It's, it's a huge problem problem there. Wow. Um, to the point that, that, that you were making, um, you know, I was going to save this for the end of the show because uh, we are going to introduce a, a little recommendations uh, section towards the end. And, and one of the items I had today was actually uh, maybe one of the only times I'll ever mention a Fox News interview. But um, I mean, this this circulated quite widely among, you know, China affiliated people on Twitter. And it's a Tucker Carlson interview with, um, you know, a McKinsey veteran. And the person had worked at McKinsey for 34 years or something, or maybe it was more than that. Um, so a very long time and, and kind of had a front row seat on sort of the, 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 the outsourcing of manufacturing um, and other industry overseas, you know, primarily to China. And uh, Tucker actually mentions this point and he asks him directly, do you feel responsible for this? You know, the fact that, you know, Americans don't have enough PPE, they don't have enough masks, and, you know, in some cases they don't even have enough medicine. Uh, and these are things that, that were outsourced to China over the last 20 years. And um, I think you're right. I think, you know, the, the attack on globalization really began in earnest with the election of Donald Trump. I mean, he, he looks at, you know, uh, global trade um, in kind of a mercantilist way. Um, 
But I, I think, you know, there were some skeptics at the beginning, but it's interesting now, like some some of the criticism of global trade has become bipartisan in the United States. I think, I think you know, Republicans and Democrats both, both feel that it's time to confront China on trade issues. And I think when you see, you know, this outbreak happen, um, it's just putting more juice behind that argument. And it's just making more people come around to realize that there are national security considerations to global trade. It's not just about finding, you know, the cheapest factory in the poorest country. It really is about, you know, securing these, these, uh, these materials, you know, for, for, for instances like this. Um, I mean, one, one instance that happened a while ago too, is just rare earth minerals. I mean, I, I think you've heard about those. They're, they're, they're used in, uh, in a lot of technology products, but I mean, most of the rare earths now are in China. And um, a few years ago, China was sort of playing politics and saying they weren't going to export those. And it meant that Japanese companies, you know, couldn't make phones and cameras and televisions and things like that. So these are really serious issues. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. They're, they're going to be moved uh, to a priority placement as, uh, as companies come back from this and begin rethinking their supply chains. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, you know, there's been a bit of a, a, a trickle down effect where this was, this was predominantly the dom- domain of, of CEOs and government legislature legislators. But, um, you know, I'm thinking of I'm conscious of one particular image that was circulated quite widely in, in the Canadian press. And that was an image of a, a huge plane returning from China. And it, was, it had traveled to China specifically for the purpose of picking up masks to bring back to circulate to frontline workers was that the new england the plane, patriots plane um they no, actually it, came it, they um it, 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 it may have been yeah robert um, Kraft, the owner of the patriots uh, this is related to the company i work for in fact uh he needed to secure additional masks and ppe from china and um you know i mean right now it's very difficult to to move back and forth because of all the travel restrictions uh so robert Kraft used the new england patriots plane to fly to shenzhen uh, where it was it was given clearance to land for two hours, and the plane was loaded up with with PPE or just with masks actually no no PPE and and immediately flew back to Boston. Uh, so there there have been several cases of of, of things like that because uh, yeah China's where the masks come from. Well well this was yeah this, this is this was a different than this was clearly a different plane. This was a plane that was was chartered from Canada uh, to China to 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 load up with masks and there is this image when the plane landed back in Canada and it was empty there there were there were no masks it came back it came back with next to nothing and that image was circulated widely across the country and i think that was interesting because for a lot of um, you know, a, a lot of laymen, perhaps that aren't aren't necessarily inclined to follow the the political implications of of these issues or or global trade. What, of course, anyone can relate to is, well, I need a mask for myself, and I need a mask for my family, and I want to make sure that the doctors that are that are helping people and the nurses that are helping people on the front lines that they have masks. And why do we have planes coming back empty with 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 nothing? And why is it that we're reliant? upon you know a foreign market for all of our all of the domestic uh, domestic masks so i think you know you've got people thinking about these issues in a way that they weren't thinking about them before okay in the in the uh, case you're talking about actually canada did secure uh, the masks and they did secure a shipment uh, but quality wise they fell short in testing and quality control so canada had gone there they had got them they ran them through tests and they failed and that's why that's why the plane was empty 
So those those are those are concerns too. Um, you know, China has been criticized for providing. I, I, it happened in the in Europe as well. Uh, there were a lot of masks and PPE sent to Europe that ended up sort of failing quality quality requirements. Um, and I mean, that's sort of an offshoot of what you're talking about as well. It's just that, um, I mean, there, there are a lot of high quality masks being made in China, but you do have to do your due diligence. And I think Canada got caught a little bit on that one. Anyway, um, I, you know, I am noticing, I mean, here in Hong Kong, like it, we, I mean, I was out where everyone's back to work. So, you know, I'm going to the office. It's now two weeks. I've been going to the office, um, you know, subway system here, which is the MTR. It's full. It's crowded streets are crowded everything's open malls i mean it's 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 not a hundred percent what it was before the virus but you know during the week it's busy i mean the restaurants are packed i was in toywa the other day and uh every table was taken um so you know we're back at that level and you're still seeing no no new cases day by day so i mean it's a really good sign uh i think for elsewhere uh if if you know if you can keep the really strict guidelines on on masks and social distancing and you can hold it for about two months uh you can you can end up in a good in a good place but i think singapore you know like we talked about that that's the that's the case that's the opposite they were doing well it can look like you're you're over it and then end up with you know being one of the the hardest hit countries uh in the world um, so that's another another thing we can't we can't really I don't think there's ever going to be going back to exactly the way it was before I think too much has happened I think people are going to be wary of shaking hands and you know being around people with with uh, with colds or the flu um, I think mask wearing is going to become a lot more common I think there's a lot of people that will not wear masks no matter what but I think we're going to see more of them in more countries you know as a result of this too um, and you know another sign of life uh, in the U.S. A, a big a big deal was the NFL draft. Uh, you know it's it's interesting because you know obviously all the sports leagues are shut down, which is a problem because you know sports, Broadway, you know uh, music, movies, tell these are all escapes from daily life. And so you know in a case like sports, it's one 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 less thing to kind of distract you from all of the negative news related to the virus, but. Um, you know, the NFL managed to hold its draft, uh, you know, with people at home. I mean, the uh, commissioner of the NFL was at home. Uh, the various teams were, were, were broadcasting from their own, you know, the homes of the, of the general managers and the coaches. Uh, and it was quite a production. You know, I think in, in years, uh, many years into the future, we're going to look back, you know, at 2020 and just think like, wow. What was what was going on then? Look at look at the stuff that happened, and uh, you know how we managed to hold these kinds of events. It's it's kind of amazing. Absolutely, but I mean, it also shows that there's no reason why that can't be done. I understand that it's um, you know it's it's not ideal, it's not optimal. Um, you know, part of the excitement is, you know, you can sort of cut to that that player that wasn't drafted that was expected to be drafted in the first round. Um, I, I I get that, but. It's not like we can't structure these events remotely. And I, I, you know, you raise a great point. I think this is going to fundamentally alter the way that sports is broadcast going forward and, and possibly the way that it's played at the professional level as well. You know, and just an anecdote from me. I mean, I, um, like I, I don't I wasn't using video chat or even just, you know, online conferencing software very often. I, you know, in my career, you know, obviously I've had to have Zoom meetings over the years or, um, you know, or Skype or, or, or Cisco WebEx kind of kind of kind of meetings. Um, but, you know, the company I'm working in now is a global company. And so we have offices in the United States and uh, 
in, in Malaysia and many other places. So, you know, keeping in touch with them means a lot more, you know, a lot more online conversations. Um, but then, you know, you had COVID into it as well. And so, you know, virtually every conversation we have internally is, is over one of these networks. And, you know, for me, it's just, it's become so second nature already, you know, like previously it would be a, okay, like maybe we'll have a call later this week at 4 PM to 5 PM. Let's book everyone's calendar. You know, now it really is just, Hey, do you have time to talk with this? Yes. Does this person? Yes. Okay. Let's jump, jump on a call. And, you know, we're all on and we're connected via, via one of these software, software programs. So um, I think that that's something that has changed. It's just become so much easier to, to connect and to talk. And I think there will be an impact on travel to some degree. Um, there is one app that was released and I wish I could remember the name. I'll try and put it in the show notes, but it replicates the idea of going to a conference. So if you, you know, if you go to a uh, some sort of a seminar conference, a multi-day event. I mean, obviously there's, there's coffee breaks and, and there's lunches and there's sort of networking afterwards and there's cocktails and all of these opportunities to run into people and to talk to them and to introduce yourself, which is very, very hard to replicate online. Um, but there is one company, and I wish I had the name of it, I'm going to try and find it, that has managed to do that. And they have, uh, they have become huge very quickly. Um, and I have not tried it, but apparently it replicates some of that, that you can bump into people, you can quickly chat uh, you know, with strangers without making an appointment to, to, to meet somebody. Um, so I think a lot of this is showing companies, governments, you know, a, a lot of us that a lot can be done online. You know, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of doing things in person. I like meeting people, you know, I like, I like going out, but, um, it's, it's much better than I think people thought it was online and it can do a much better job than, than we anticipated. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's interesting. I was having a chat with um, one of my colleagues the other day who um, he, you know, he conducted uh, a mediation virtually. And, you know, mediations are a really, really interesting aspect of, of the legal process. And they're sort of, they're sort of conducted a little bit differently depending on where you are. Um, you know, in, in, in the employment bar and most of, and frankly, most, um, areas of law with, within Canada, the process is, you know, you have lawyer and lawyer's client in one room, opposing counsel and their client in another room. And then you have the mediator who goes, in between rooms, you go back and forth and you effectively try and negotiate and grind out a settlement. And of course, it's important to to be in to be present and be in person so you can sort of see how the mediator reacts. You can interpret hand movements, gestures, eye contact, those sorts of things. But, um, you know, my, my colleague was saying that he didn't really notice that big of a big of a loss. He was really concerned about it. Um, but he said, you know, it, it, it wasn't really that big of a deal. It actually was kind of cool. It was kind of neat. You know, you, you can you sign into a separate room that you have just with the mediator and you have a separate room with your client. Um, you can have breakout rooms. And he he said that it was really, really cool and perhaps, you know, a sign of a sign of things to come. And he's not the only one. That I've I've heard that from I've heard that from a, a number of, of of lawyers that I keep in touch with, who have conducted virtual mediations, virtual uh, examinations for discovery, and they've all said that yeah you know what it actually it it wasn't that bad it wasn't that big of a deal. 
Okay, Doc, this is a nice little segue. We're talking about law, and uh, I know there is one particular thing that you wanted to talk about today, and I believe it has to do with China, which is convenient for me because it's next door. Uh, so what, <laughs> what have you got? Yeah, um, I've, I've been reading a lot of articles, as I'm sure you have over the past couple of weeks, um, about the prospect of companies suing China for effectively dropping the ball and failing to to advise foreign nations of uh, of the implications of COVID, of the the threat uh, and health consequences of COVID, and you know I I think it, it's important that people sort of understand where where we're at with that because. You know, I, I've been speaking with some people who say, oh, well, hey, you know, well, these companies can just turn around and sue China for this or everybody should sue China. It's like, well, it's not really as simple as that. Yeah. And um, I want to ask about that. Like if, 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 I mean, you're the lawyer, I'm definitely not a lawyer. Uh, how, you know, if I feel wronged, if my business um, had to get shut down or if I lost my job and future earnings as a result of this, or I mean, I'm not even sure what, what classifies as something that you could take to court. Uh, I mean, how, how would how would a company or a business or a government go about this? Well, it's a really good question, and you know, this is this is not something that typically falls within my bailiwick. So, you know, I, but I spent some time doing doing some some legal research around the issues and the particular statutes, and it was it was very enlightening, very very interesting. So, uh, you know, there's there's this doctrine. It's called the doctrine of of sovereign immunity. Um, and in the U.S., they have uh, the the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. So this was an act. I won't I won't bore you with all of the details, but it was an act that was that was passed in um, in 1976. Canada has has a, a similar act called the the State Immunity Act. Um, and these statutes were effectively passed to protect foreign sovereigns. Um, from the burden of litigation, including cost and aggravation of discovery, et cetera, et cetera, um, in, in foreign countries. And the whole idea is based on this notion of sovereign reciprocity. So you can't sue us and we can't sue you. And it makes perfect sense because, frankly, if we if we lived in an international legal community where every country could sue every other country, um, every time they had some sort of dispute, I mean, the, the, the whole thing, the whole system would just completely collapse. It's just not practical. Um, but that said, you know, if a control of a, of a company turns out to be private, then the sovereign immunity defense doesn't apply. And, you know, Canada's legislation has a similar commercial activity uh, exception. So, you know, all of these lawsuits, um, they're all arguing that they fall within this particular statutory exemption to immunity on the basis of, uh, you know, commercial activity. How many lawsuits um, are there? Well, I mean, that that I'm aware of, at least in, in the U.S., there's there's been six six large ones that have been reported on um and most of them are proceeding as as class actions so you know large large claims where you've got multiple plaintiffs so um, what are they claiming like what what is their what is their argument like what, what what's their justification well yeah good question i mean one of the one of the actions that was filed in the state of florida they're suing china for for negligence for negligent infliction of mental and emotional distress intentional infliction of emotional distress um, and the, you know, they're effectively alleging that China and 
other defendants because I mean it's it's crazy. This I, I was looking at the statement of claim, and they are suing um, the People's Republic of China, including the National Health Commission, the Ministry of Emergency Management, the Ministry of Civil Affairs. You name the ministry, they're named. They're named in the claim, and they're alleging that these defendants they knew they knew that COVID nineteen was dangerous and that it was capable of causing a pandemic, yet they slowly acted. Um, they proverbially put their head in the sand and that's actually language from the, from the claim. We can provide a link to it in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, and, or they covered it up for their own economic self-interest. So those are the allegations. Um, so really, really interesting stuff, but where's that going to get you? Um, and you know, I, I think, and I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on this point, but I've certainly been reading, um, on, on some of the lawyers who are experts on this. And the con- general consensus seems to be that the litigation will fail based on the doctrine of sovereign immunity. Um, wasn't this an I issue, think- sorry, you want to cut you off. Wasn't this an issue hmm. with nine 11 as well? Because there was talk of suing Saudi Arabia, um, you know, for sort of harboring terrorists. Um, I can't remember what happened as a result of that. I know there for a while there, they couldn't, but then I thought eventually they could. Yeah. And again, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not familiar enough with what happened to sort of speak on it with any, any form of authority. But, um, you know, I know that there, there is some, some language in the legislation that speaks to acts of terrorism. But again, I I don't want to speak to sort of the, the, the implications of that, because I'm just not familiar enough to, to sort of comment on it. Okay. So, I mean, again, as a layman, they're, they're, they're suing China. So how, I mean, well, does does the Chinese government get like a letter from a court in Florida saying, you know, we expect you to appear on such and such a day, or uh, you know, how, what 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 is the actual logistics of this? <laughs> good. Well, yeah. Good. Good question. I mean, well, you know, let's let's sort of stick with the one example of the the piece of litigation in in Florida. So, I mean, yeah, they're suing within the state of Florida, so they would go before a a a judge in Florida. Um, and try and try and make their make their argument, make their claim. But, you know, of course, to your point, um, you know, even if even if a court was to take the position that, OK, hey, you know, this this falls under the sort of the um, the commercial activity exemption and, um, you know, China can't be protected by um, by sovereign immunity. You know, how are you going to how are you going to enforce the judgment? Right. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. To it seems point, like it's kind of you, futile. You're going to send an email to somebody at the at the PRC and say, hey, you owe us however many millions or billions of billions of dollars. It's not it's not really practical, practical. But, I, you know, I think more importantly, and and this is sort of sort of a bigger thing, you know, uh, even if you were able to to get a to get a decision, um and to proceed on that basis, this could start, you know, a, a complete and utter global mess. Because frankly, if China, they could then take a similar position vis-a-vis the U.S. They could say, okay, great. So um, you're going to completely disregard the doctrine of sovereign immunity. So you know what? We're going to do that as well. And we're going to start filing claims <clears throat> against you know, the U.S. government or, or, or U.S. companies that would typically be protected. Um, so it, nobody really wins if we go down this road. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it does sound futile then. I mean, it just seems like a, a waste of time if it's, 
you know, set up this way and there's actually no way to compel China, um, you know, to take it seriously. And I have no doubt that China would not take it seriously. Um, I mean, I, I know that um, a lot of our listeners are back in North America, but I mean, from, from, from over on this side, I mean, mainland China has been running a very, very slick propaganda campaign domestically. Uh, for the last six to eight weeks that really um, is highlighting America's struggles with the coronavirus. Uh, The fact that hospitals don't have PPE, the fact that they're short of masks, uh, the fact that there's, you know, so many deaths in the U.S. And they're pointing out that this is proof, you know, that the Chinese system is superior, that they're able to look after their people much better. And don't they feel so much safer being in China instead of being overseas where, uh, chaos reigns uh, and this has been pushed day after day after day after day so you know if it, I, it looks like this virus started in China in or around Wuhan that's what we know uh, but there's been enough doubt uh, sowed into this in terms of what the Chinese media has been saying and I think people will be aware of um, a foreign ministry spokesman in China suggesting that it was um, the US brought the virus to Wuhan as part of the uh, military games. So I guess uh, militaries converge to to sort of do a mini Olympic style games. And uh, in, in 2019, it was held in Wuhan in September. Uh, so I mean, that allegation was made by, by, by the Chinese government with no evidence to support it. But when you take a look at muddying the waters that way, as they did in China, and with the US's slow and somewhat poor response, um, you know, it is effective. I think, um, it, it really did effectively kind of shut down some of the anger that Chinese people did feel towards the Communist Party. Uh, but it's really hard to say for sure, because there are no independent, you know, polling uh, of, of Chinese people. Right. So we, we, we effectively have to take their word on it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but you can see stuff online. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, that part is effective because you can go up there and talk and talk to people as well. Uh, for the journalists that are still there, uh, anyway. Um, I mean, the good news: uh, there were a lot of foreign reporters in Wuhan over the last week. In fact, because the city opened up on the seventeenth, I believe, um, and people are you know even outside there now. But there is, you know, in some of the reports I was reading from there, there's still this sort of simmering kind of. Um, I don't know if I call it anger, but there's a, a desire to know what happened. How did this happen? You know, where did it come from? Who dropped the ball? Why did it get so bad? Um, because, you know, Wuhan was really, really under lockdown there for, for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, a lot of people died there as well. So I think, um, you know, there's going to be questions for, for quite a long time. And I mean, also, uh, looking at some of the comments by foreign governments, I think China is going to face a lot of pressure when this is done, because there is a lot of anger at China for this. And when you consider, I mean, th- there were plenty of warnings in advance about these wet markets in China and some of the exotic animals that were being sold there. Um, you know, this isn't a new thing at all. Um, and, uh, when you consider the economic impact this has had globally, uh, I mean, uh, Dominic Rabb in, in, in the, in the uh, British government, UK government, has already said there's going to be a reckoning with China uh, when this is done. And there's been other similar comments as well. And I think it's, uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be ugly. I think, you know, the days of global cooperation and, uh, and, and globalized trade and open borders, those days are, are really behind us now. I think there's no doubt about that. 
Yeah, I, I think you're, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There's going to be, there's going to be a fundamental shift. Um, but I mean, you know, I look at the Canadian government hasn't really addressed how they're going to deal with this. I mean, our prime minister has been peppered with questions of, you know, are you going to hold China accountable? Are you going to hold China accountable? And then and the position thus far has been, you know, look, we're focused on protecting our own population, getting us back to some semblance of, of normal. And once that's said and done, then we can focus our efforts on responsibility and, and taking proactive action specifically against China. And I think there's probably a lot of governments that are taking a, a similar position. Um, but, you know, then you look to the U.S. I, I mean, and again, they, they, my understanding is that there's now members of Congress that are have drafted legislation in a specific attempt to remove China's sovereign immunity to sort of enable um, companies to go after the government. And, uh, and now, I, again, how successful is that going to be? Um, you know, the, the, the articles that I've read and, you know, we can link to one in the show notes, which is a great article by, a, you know, a partner in the U.S. who was a formal legal advisor to the State Department, um, John B. Bellinger III. Uh, and he seems to take the position that, you know, this this probably isn't going to go anywhere, but at least speaks to the general sentiment that um, governments and the population are are very, very, very angry um, at China with regard to what's, you know, what's transpired. Yeah, I, there's some uh, there is some sympathy, I think, in terms of I mean, these kinds of viruses have appeared in other places as well. I mean, in Japan and in the Middle East and, and places like that. Um, but the response, I mean, China is praised, rightfully so, I think, for its response as of about January 20th. So the 20th or the 23rd when, when, when um, you know, the government formally announced the lockdown and that this was a, an issue. But between, you know... Some people say it's in uh, end of November or sometime in December when, when, when the virus first started really spreading quickly. There was valuable time lost there when uh, nothing was done. And the people that were speaking out, such as Dr. Li Wenliang, uh, they were ignored or, or forced to close their mouths uh, because it was deemed a rumor by the Wuhan government. So um, that, that lost time there has really really impacted everybody and so you know well china did the right thing you know as of late january it absolutely did the wrong thing before then and it should be held accountable for that yeah i'm, I'm with you um i as do are most people i think yeah i think so um i do want to go into uh, uh the pr item this week and um because it is related to china and it's related to um some of the nationalism that's going on there so i mean just a bit of background for people um China ha has not been overly nationalistic in its history. There have been periods like the Boxer Rebellion, uh, you know, where there has been a lot of anger at the outside world or at foreigners and things like that. Um, but when you go through the Cultural Revolution, I'm not going to give a history lesson on this podcast, but, you know, when you go through the Cultural Revolution, there, you know, there's a lot of upheaval, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of uh, struggling. Uh, and into the 1980s, um, you know, in the 80s in China, it was opening up quite a bit. And that led to 1989. Uh, which resulted in that which we cannot name uh, happening in Tiananmen Square uh, that year. Um, but as a result of that, uh, the Chinese leadership decided, you know, it's time to get people more patriotic. It's time to get them, uh, you know, a little more unified. Um, and, you know, patriotism or nationalism is uh, effective way to do that, as we've seen throughout history. 
Um, and so the result now is, um, I mean, if you navigate the Chinese internet space, like with Sina Weibo uh, or, or WeChat and those areas, I mean, you do see... Um, a lot of a lot of nationalism, a lot of anger. Sometimes there's a lot of anger at foreigners, like there is right now. Uh, in fact, because of the virus spreading so much in the U.S., uh, you know, there there are many restaurants in Beijing that simply say no foreigners allowed, uh, and you can't go in there. And in Guangzhou, um, which is uh, in southern China, near Hong Kong, where I am, uh, there are places that won't allow black people inside either. There's actually videos circulating on Twitter where black people try to walk into a shopping mall. Uh, with with white people, and they'll let the white people in and keep the black people out uh, because they believe that COVID has been spreading in Africa, and therefore these uh, these people in Guangzhou are, are, are risks. Um, and I should note that Guangzhou has a very large African community, so I mean it's been a problem, and a lot of the uh, the consul the consulates there <clears throat> have been trying to help out uh, some of the some of the displaced Africans in the city because many were actually kicked out of their apartments by the landlords as well. So, I mean, that's a huge story. But there is one instance where uh, nationalism clashed with another country. And it's a bit of a crazy story. I know this did not get covered in, in the international media. So that's why I kind of wanted to bring this up. And we're not going to go through every detail here. Um, but it, it basically started uh, over this. There's a TV soap. And it's called Together. And it's popular in mainland China. So people like the show quite a bit. And um, the male lead in that show uh, is a Thai, uh, a Thai national. And uh, his nickname is Bright. Uh, so he's become quite well known. Bright is quite well known in mainland China as a result of the popularity of this show. Um, so Bright actually has a girlfriend in real life, another Thai woman. And she goes by the name New, N-E-W. Uh, and so th these guys are a couple, and it's kind of well-known in the entertainment industry, uh, you know, the situation with, with these two. But here's, here's the problem. Bright recently retweeted some photos taken by a professional photographer um, on Twitter, and he just retweeted them. Uh, but the photos were from multiple places in the world, and uh, the caption was, taken from four countries. You and you might already detect where this might go sideways. Um, one one of the images was of Hong Kong. So, uh, you know, Hong Kong, where I am now, I mean, it, it does have a border around it, and it does have its own currency and its own laws and its own government. Um, but it's technically not a country. It is a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China. Um, so people in mainland China, especially with the, you know, the protests here last year, they got upset about this uh as they do they've done this you know with taiwan multiple times as well you know they've um marriott i believe last year the year before listed taiwan as a country and and chinese people called for an online boycott of marriott so anyway uh naturally bright was criticized for this uh you know and they told him in no uncertain terms that hong kong is a sar of china and uh bright apologized for the offense now Number two, the mainland internet users dug up a photo of New, his girlfriend, which she posted to Instagram while she was in Taiwan. And this is September of 2017. So they went back through uh, both of their social media accounts and found this. And it's actually a photo. I'm going to send a link with, with this breakdown and, and these actual social posts so you can take a look at it. 
Um, and she's actually just in the photo by herself and she's standing in the middle of the road. And uh, Bright leaves a comment there and just says, so pretty, just like a Chinese girl. New responds with some casual tie. And this is where some of the controversy has centered. Um, if you translate her remark, it's a one-word remark, it translates as what? But actually in colloquial Thai, people are telling us that it's more like writing hmm, uh, or just sort of an acknowledgement. Uh, anyway, mainland Chinese internet users obviously put that phrase into their, into their translators and they found what? Uh, which they took as a slight against China, because if you read it that way, Bright says, so pretty, just like a Chinese girl. And she says, what? As if she's sort of taking offense to the remark. Um, so that was round two. Uh, mainland nationalistic internet users kind of went nuts about that uh, online. And then number three, mainland users dug up a post retweeted by New that said the coronavirus had originated in China. Now, some have said the retreat referred to the virus as the Wuhan virus, which obviously is a sensitive terminology that Chinese people and many, many people around the world reject. Um, but again, the translation isn't quite clear. Uh, it, it, it could be that or it could be something close to that. I mean, as you know, translating can sometimes be difficult if you're trying to trying to get um, you know a direct meaning. Anyway, these three offenses basically resulted in hundreds of thousands of uh, remarks on Twitter of Chinese people really attacking these two uh, online. And, uh, you know, it was very uh, patriotic, nationalistic in tone. Now, here's the interesting part, because um, I think this really helps us understand sort of where China is at in terms of the communications there and the media and some of the, you know, messages that are, are shared with, with Chinese people throughout, throughout the day. Um, eventually, Chinese people began attacking the Thai government. So they went after the government for for some of some of its sins. Uh, there were, I believe, there was a uh, you know a large incident several decades ago that Chinese people dug up and began blasting you know Thai people for for the poor performance of their government and for uh, for poor governance and so on and so forth. But what's interesting about this is the ties, and you've been there, Ewan, many times, as I have been, they're very sort of relaxed. It's, it's a great country. I mean, they're known as the land of smiles. But once mm -hmm. China, Chinese people began, you know, uh, criticizing the government and the leadership in Thailand, the ties jumped right in. They said, yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. Our government's horrible. Uh, but this really confused some of the Chinese people because it's just something they would never consider saying it's i mean it's not it's not not that it's not permitted in china but it's just you know the communist party has done a, such a good job of fusing itself with chinese identity in general so if you criticize the chinese government it is like you're criticizing all of china and i think you know a good one thing i remember a good example of this is in the 90s i remember under jean chrétien you know people said that he had sort of fused the liberal party with canada and uh, and he had done a good job of that and it does work it pays off you know for the political party that can do that so i think you know the chinese people were very confused why the ties just sort of agreed with them um and and also took pot shots at their own government <laughs> and it did leave 
you know, Chinese people very perplexed as to how they could do this, why they would do this, and it was just so far outside of their own expectation, uh, you know, of what of what people might say. Um, I mean, that's the biggest uh, sort of tell about how the information ecosystem operates in China. And I think, you know, that kind of nationalism and patriotism and sort of the assumption that all other countries are exactly the same is something that has hurt companies in the past. I mentioned Marriott. There's many, many others. Uh, and I think it's still a risk for a lot of companies doing business in China uh, that they have to understand that this is a... Uh, this is an environment that is very different. I mean, we know other countries are can be patriotic or nationalistic to some degree as well, but it's unique uh, how it how it how it how it manifests itself um, in mainland China. I will say, just as an addendum to this, there have where there were some excellent memes flying back and forth, uh, really really hilarious ones, and I'm going to provide a, a link to actually a story I wrote about this uh, on my blog, so you can take a look. Um, and actually, if you go on Twitter and you hashtag, hashtag N-N-E-V-V-Y, so double N-E-double-V-Y, uh, that's actually a uh, news sort of Thai name hashtag. Uh, so if you, if, you, if you put that into Twitter, you'll see some just amazing stuff going back and forth. And one of the things that really came out of it, because I mean, once, once, once China is involved in sort of a conflict like this online, naturally... Taiwan people want to jump in and Hong Kong people want to jump in because they're not happy with the Chinese government either. And so they have formed what they're calling the Milk Tea Alliance. Three countries or three regions, I should say, um, that all have milk tea, that love their milk tea, Thailand, Taiwan and Hong Kong. And uh, I think it's a beautiful alliance, if you ask me. The Milk Tea Alliance. Wow, I, I I love it. That's great. Yeah, if you haven't been to uh, Hong Kong, uh, milk tea is something that's hugely popular here, uh, and it's sort of made with condensed condensed milk. I I don't know. It's 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 an, it's an odd drink, but it, uh, it I'm at the point now where it's a comfort food with me. Uh, I've been here long enough that there are days I crave it. Uh, but Thailand has excellent milk tea as well, and it is slightly different. And I, I guess you know, Tha- is Taiwan milk tea? similar I, I actually don't know if i've had it yeah i mean it uh, taiwanese milk tea is is fantastic uh, you know especially the you know the, the oolong or the the jasmine milk tea it's really really nice but of course you know the bubble tea is very 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 popular in taiwan and for for those who may not be familiar with with bubble tea um it's effectively a, it's a milk tea but with little sweet tapioca balls in it it's uh yeah it, there's it's a really sort of jarring it's a very jarring experience the first time because you you know you just want to have a have a drink and then you end up sort of chewing these kind of chewy tapioca balls while you're drinking your drinking your milk tea. But yes, hugely hugely popular in, in Taiwan. Well, you know, uh, I'm going off topic here. We're going off the rails, but the the big thing right now here, you and is cheese tea, and it actually kind of started or at least was made popular in mainland China by this chain that is now hugely popular. It's called Hey Tea. It actually came out a couple of years ago, uh, but it is a, a young mainland guy. I believe he's in the early 20s, and he founded this chain of tea spots. Um, you know, they actually do not take cash. It's one of the one of the places in, in China now that doesn't accept cash as payment. So you, you have to order uh, using the app. And um, it's kind of like a, 
you think of cheese and tea and it sounds disgusting, but this cheese is a little bit more like cream cheese and like a whipped cream kind of cheese. I, I wouldn't call it cheese as a North American, but uh, they do call it cheese there. And actually, it's amazingly good. I, it's definitely not a healthy drink. If you're on a diet, you're not going to want to have it. But um, it has spread quickly. I think Haiti does the best. They're the ones that are known for. But a, a lot of the bubble tea shops and other tea places are doing their own sort of versions of this cheese tea. And uh, I think it's only a matter of time before you start seeing it back there in T-Dot, Ewan. Mm, okay, well, I'll, I'll I'll have to check that out. I'm sure it's here, and I just uh, I just haven't haven't noticed. <laughs> but seeing seeing as we're going off the rails, I think we should give a shout out to. And this is a, a, a little it's outside of the the milk tea alliance, but coconut coffee in Vietnam mm. is uh, wow. How is, is this not incredible. a thing back there? Uh, there, and I can't even remember the name of the coffee shop now. I, you know, I'm gonna have to put this in the show notes. We're gonna have a big show notes today. There, there is a, uh, there is a, a chain of Starbucks-like coffee shops, but a, it's a little bit more uh, industrial than Starbucks. It's not as refined. And I mean, Vietnam's a busy, busy, hectic place. Um, but yeah, they make coconut coffee, and it's made with a lot of coconut cream. It looks like. And some coffee and some ice and a few other things go in there. But yeah, we were down there a few years ago and it uh, we tried it at the recommendation of a cab driver. And after we had had it, every day thereafter, we stopped for it. It was a must. And I believe we almost went way out of our way on the day we had to go to the airport just to get a, a final a final cup of it. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it, and, and again, to sort of sum up what it is it's basically it's a coffee frappuccino but instead of being made with milk it's made with coconut cream yeah they do throw uh, a few other things into it i watched them make it that it's the base is coconut cream for sure and then they put a shot of a two of espresso and then or a vietnamese coffee and there's a couple other things that go in there and i can't remember what it is now it it it, it, it's magic i mean really if if you're a coffee drinker it's it's just it's magic and i'm 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 desperately desperately waiting for it to make its way to to toronto yeah it's one of those things that it's just it's gonna it's gonna go there something this good can't be uh can't be confined to the vietnamese board inside the vietnamese borders absolutely right okay Yuan. um we are uh running out of time here so there's a couple things i just wanted to uh, touch on um, one um, we do at the end of every show um, and we're just going to try this out I don't know if it's going to work or not but we do want to if there's a couple of things that we came across in the week that we think might be interesting to our audience uh, we want to mention them at the end of the show it's just a couple of other resources that you might want to check out um, I had two items down here and I kind of sprung it on you and so it's fine if it doesn't have anything but um, one I already mentioned, which was the, the Tucker Carlson interview with the McKinsey person. Um, I am no fan of Tucker Carlson, but I found that this was one of the first times I was kind of cheering him on because I think um, I think people like the person that he interviewed and what he pushed over the last 20 years is why we are in this problem that we're in today. And I think people of his ilk should be held responsible for that. I think uh, he said some... The, the guy said he had been to China 80 times or something, and it's shocking because he had basic statistics wrong and he could not pronounce Xinjiang. The way he pronounced it was, I think he called it Chin Chang. 
So, I mean, I, I, I cannot believe that he has spent a lot of time in China when you make that kind of mistake. I know that sounds really sort of elitist of me, but if you spent time in China, you will know how to say the place names. Uh, it's one of the first things that you would learn, so I'm highly skeptical. Um, but the second thing I wanted to mention, um, this, was, this came on as an accident. So the New York Times does a does a uh, podcast called The Daily. And, I mean, like the name implies, it comes out every day. And, you know, The Times was late to this. Uh, you know, they jumped on podcasts a little bit late. But right away, The Daily has become, you know, one of the most popular shows out there. And it's not a, it's not a newscast. They really pick one subject and do a podcast on that one subject each day, something that's in the news. And I was actually listening to it for another reason. Uh, but when the podcast ended that I was listening to, this one came on. And it was amazing. And it was set in Canada. And it's, it talks about, as a result of COVID-19, you know, people are passing away. And not just from COVID, but many other things as well. And because of the social distancing rules in place, you know, there, there's no opportunity for people to gather at a person's bedside uh, or even to say goodbye or even to hold a funeral. Um, so there's sort of this, it's, uh, these people sort of have not had any closure. You know, a, a family member or a close friend passes away and it's just kind of nothing as, as, as you wait uh, until this ends to, to be able to do something. And, you know, what does that do for people's psyche? But in the podcast, it actually talks to a uh, pastor in southern Ontario who had done, his wife passed away, and he did an online funeral using Zoom. And he had people connect from all over the world, and they had songs, they had uh, you know, some of the some of the uh, people had you know played played songs on using musical instruments, obviously, um, and things like that. And it actually became like a like a full funeral service with a lot of people sharing and connecting. Um, and it, it was a fascinating show because I think you know, in a way, when it ended, a lot of the people said that actually, in some ways, it was even better than a than a traditional funeral because you were in this Zoom room with everyone. And when someone was sharing, everyone could see their face. You know, they were up close and everyone could hear that, you know, there wasn't little circles of people talking here and there. Um, and that it was really, really intimate and really touching. And um, I thought it was an, an absolutely fantastic look at sort of how this came together and uh, and how it went. And so I will put a uh, link to that in the show notes because I think it's a, it's a really nice story. Yeah, I think one thing I, I should certainly touch upon before we, we leave, um, and you just made me think about it in, in telling your story, is, of course, the, the shooting that occurred in, in Nova Scotia um, here in Canada. And, you know, shout out to any any listeners we may have in the province of Nova Scotia. We're thinking of you guys and, um, you know, just an absolutely uh, horrific, horrific incident um a mass one of the largest mass shootings we've had in canadian history 22 people dead um a lone gunman at least we, we still believe it was a lone gunman um who went to a number of locations around the province um killing people it, it, it just really really horrible 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 situation and um to your point cam it, it of course has made the the service uh, very very difficult and complicated obviously there's a a number of people from across the country who who wanted to get out in, in solidarity um, with Nova Scotians and um, show our support, uh, grieve, be present at, at uh, funeral services. And of course, that's just not really a possibility 
um, given what's what's going on. Um, but they they similarly did, uh, and, and I understand that there is something of a of a a number of local musicians that got involved and uh, government officials that participated in a in a, a zoom a zoom call to try and give everybody an opportunity to to grieve and uh and and support the the community as as canadians so anyway i just wanted to put that out there and yeah a, a shout out to to everybody in Nova Scotia, we're, we're, we're thinking of you guys. Yeah, very, very sad situation. I mean, sad uh, anytime. It's horrific. But, you know, when when social distancing is in place, it's, you know, it's even it's even more difficult. And I think, you know, you talk about these online gatherings, I think it does show that when, you know, when people feel something, and when they're, when they're really motivated, and they want to get together, and they want to have a sense of community, that we can overcome these 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 rules and the social distancing and sort of the obstacles that try and keep people apart. Uh, we do find ways to come together, and I think that's really quite inspiring. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't want to end the show on that note, but I do want to uh, just remind everyone that uh, we will have sort of an extensive show notes for this episode. So please, you know, we talked about a number of different things here, like a, a mobile app or an application for for hosting and attending conferences, uh, the Tucker Carlson interview, you know, the empty plane that Canada had that returned from China, uh, you know, Ewan's story about uh, people in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere being able to sue China. Um, you know, all of this sort of stuff, as well as sort of the story that I told about the, uh, the conflict between Thailand and China. We will have some, some links to all of that material um, in our show notes. As always, please, if you enjoyed the podcast, if you think someone else uh, might enjoy it, who you know, please let them know. Uh, we don't have a huge marketing budget, so we certainly appreciate uh, if you share it with, with a friend or a family member. Um, and you can follow us on social media, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, our uh, social account is the same, PR Law Podcast. so P-R-L-A-W podcast. So, you know, twitter.com slash PR Law Podcast, Facebook.com slash PR Law Podcast, etc. etc. So for you and Christy, this is Kem 